All right. Good morning, guys. For those of you I haven't met yet, my name is Drew. I'm one of the pastors here at Salt City, and I have the privilege of opening up God's Word with you this morning. So we've been studying through the Gospel of Matthew, but right now we're sort of doing a teaching series within the teaching series because we decided to slow down and really take some time walking through what's called the Sermon on the Mount. And basically what we've been seeing Jesus do in the Sermon on the Mount is to reinterpret the law of God for us. And what we're going to see this morning is that the law of God isn't what we normally think it is, or it's not in a category that we normally think in. And so one way that a lot of people see the law of God is they see that it has a lot of loopholes in it. And so they sort of think that the law of God gives you a license to do whatever you want to do. It's not that exacting. It's not that scrupulous. I can kind of do whatever I want to do. The law gives me a license to sin. The other way of interpreting the law of God is that people think that it's sort of a performance standard. And so here's God's standard. And so those, those of us who are achievers in the room think, I can meet this standard. And those of us who tend to be more self-pitying in the room think, I could never meet that standard. And so there's this idea that if you're good enough, you can work your way to God through his law. And what Jesus actually does is at the same time, by unpacking what the law of God really is, is he debunks both of those things. He says it's not a way to perform your way to God, and it's not a license to sin. The law of God is a call to be like God, and specifically to love like God. And so what we're going to see from the passage this morning is that God's law is love. God's law is love. And we're going to see three ways to practice the law as love. So the first way that Jesus said, very countercultural and counterintuitive, first way to practice the law as love is don't resist evil people. So we're looking at Matthew chapter 5, and we'll start with verses 38 through 42. So Jesus said, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. So Jesus is using this construction throughout the Sermon on the Mount where he states what is being said in his day. And then he says, but I say to you, you've heard that it was said, but I say to you. The interesting thing about this particular passage is that Jesus directly quotes the Old Testament. So he said, you've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And immediately, everyone in his audience would have known that that's a quotation from Deuteronomy chapter 19. And so some people have said what Jesus is saying here 
is that he doesn't really agree with or believe that the Old Testament law applies to us now. But what Jesus is really doing, if you dig a little bit deeper into the context, is he's debunking the interpretation of the religious leaders of his day. And so what the religious leaders were doing is taking that statement completely out of its context. Because if you flip back to Deuteronomy 19, and you read the statement, an eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth, what you discover is that that statement is made in the context of the courtroom. So God is giving instruction to judges. He's giving instruction to the magistrate. And he's saying when somebody comes to a court appointment, I want you to judge them in this way, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. In other words, the whole purpose of the command was to keep people from retaliating against each other. It was to keep there from being sort of this street-level justice where somebody punches you and you punch them back. God was saying, let's take this into the courtroom, and here's the way I want things handled in the court. I don't want there to be excessive punishment toward wrongdoers, but instead, I want there to be just laws in place. It's the principle of lex talionis. It's actually the principle that governs all Western law courts down to this day. It's that a just punishment is given to fit the crime. So the way that we say it in street language is the punishment fits the crime. And so what the Pharisees did, what the teachers of the law did, is they completely took that out of context and they applied what was meant to be used as a law of non-retaliation in the courtroom and they applied it to personal relationships. And so they would say to people, this is how personal relationships work. If someone wrongs you, you wrong them back. Someone hurts you, you hurt them back. Somebody slaps you, you slap them back because they have it coming to them. Okay, this is absolutely ridiculous if you start thinking about it. Imagine that your kid is in preschool and you go to pick them up from preschool and they have a black eye. And you say to the teacher, why does my son have a black eye? And the teacher says, well, I studied law at Harvard, and there's this principle called an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. And, you know, the whole principle goes, if, if somebody strikes somebody, then you can strike them back. So your son slapped this other kid across the cheek, and so I just took him up in front of the class and let that kid punch him in the eye. You'd be like, that is the most ridiculous interpretation of the law that I've ever heard. Because what that teacher would be doing is they would be taking what is meant for the courtroom setting and applying it to the preschool setting, which is a really bad idea. And everybody knows that that's a really bad idea. And Jesus says, this principle of Deuteronomy 19 has nothing to do with personal relationships. It has to do with the courtroom. So he says, this is the law for personal relationships. 
And he gives four examples. And as we start to dig into these, we start to see how radical Jesus' message of love is to us. Okay, so the first example he gives has to do with physical harm, right? He says, if somebody slaps you on the cheek, you should turn your other cheek to them. He's saying, here's the law for your personal relationships. Somebody hurts you physically, do not hurt them back. Now, he's not giving us exact wisdom on how that plays out. So he's not answering all of our questions. What if it's in self-defense? What if I need to block somebody's arm from killing me? Those types of things. But, but here, I want you to feel the weight of this. It, it's just as countercultural for us today as it was for them. Because in our human mind, it doesn't make any sense because we start to think, I'm going to get walked all over. And Jesus is saying, it's better to get walked all over than to sin against a fellow image bearer of God. It is better to be hurt than to retaliate. Because that anger and bitterness in your heart that wells up into retaliation will not only destroy other people, it will destroy your own soul and your relationship with God. So he he applies it to the issue of physical harm. And then he he takes it right to the heart of us as Americans, and, and he talks about financial harm. So he says, if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And, and the context here assumes that they're unjustly suing you. They're unjustly trying to take what is rightfully yours. And, and in America, we think if somebody harms me, I can sue them. I can go take from them. I can get a lawyer. I can make sure that I get what's due to me. And Jesus said, if somebody seeks to do financial harm to you, let them do unjust financial harm to you. Let them get away with it. Because love is more important than money. It's more important than your rights. It's more important than having your due. And then he gives a a really kind of cultural example that would have really hit home for them. And he says, if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. And so it was a common practice. Rome was sort of the occupying force. The Jews were under the boot of Rome, being oppressed by them. And it wouldn't be uncommon for you just be standing on a street corner talking to one of your friends. And a Roman soldier would just say, hey, carry this for me. And he'd throw you a bag and and make you carry it to the next town over, walk a mile with him. He's saying if a Roman soldier does that to you, don't just go a mile. In your heart, be willing to go two miles. So in other words, he says, okay, when it has to do with physical pain, when it has to do with money, or 
when it has to do with somebody asking you to do something that is completely unreasonable to serve them, don't retaliate against them. Instead, love them. Love them in a way that seems ridiculous to you. And then the last one, he says, give to the one who begs from you and do not, receive, or do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. So here's what Jesus is saying with that in our, in our cultural vernacular. Give money to a homeless person who you know is going to spend it on booze. He's, the whole context of it is not that the person who's asking for something from you is deserving of it, but the whole point is that they're not deserving of it. They're doing something unjust to you. And Jesus is saying, don't retaliate against that. Okay, so how, how do we think about all this in light of the current cultural moment that we live in where everyone is calling for justice. Because this seems to be calling us to become oppressed or risk being walked all over by the society. And and we need to zoom out for a minute because I don't want you to interpret what I'm saying that way. Now, I do think we take Jesus' words at face value here and we don't retaliate. There's no animosity in our hearts as Christians. We respond to unjust treatment with love, but that's in a greater context of the Bible. And the reason that we can do this is because God has appointed justice to be done temporarily and imperfectly by the state and ultimately by God in final judgment. So let me add a couple passages to the context here. So the first one is Romans 13, verses 1 and 2. It says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. So in other words, we're not to dole out retribution in personal relationships, but we are to entrust the state with doling out just retribution. In other words, in personal relationships, our motto is not an eye for an eye. It's do not resist the one who's doing evil to you. But in the courtroom, the motto is an eye for an eye. Because criminals deserve to be punished. So in the whole context of the Bible, the reason that we don't have to retaliate in personal relationships is because we believe that the state has been instituted by God. Okay, that's the first thing. But again, our question is, but the state does that very imperfectly. And criminals get away with crimes all the time. So what do we do with that? And the second answer is very important. It's found in Romans 12, verses 17 through 19. And it's, that God does ultimate justice. So it says, Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge for yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. 
For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. So the temporary and imperfect reason we don't need to retaliate in personal relationships is because God has put the government in place. The ultimate reason we don't retaliate in personal relationships, even when a crime has been done against us, is because vengeance is God's. No one gets away with anything. No one gets away with anything. So I think there's three applications of this. It's to seek in the role that we have been placed in to reform the system of justice to reflect lex taliones. It's actually to hold our government accountable that the punishment fits the crime. So if you're in politics, you should work for reformation. If you're a lawyer, you should work for justice. If you are a citizen, you should seek to vote in those candidates that you think will uphold justice. But we stay in our lane, in our God-appointed position. The second thing is we defend the poor, needy, and marginalized without animosity for other people. So we stand up for those who are hurting, we stand up for those who are oppressed, but we don't do it like our culture does it by expressing outrage for the opposing group. Instead, we do it with love. And then thirdly, we entrust ultimate vengeance and justice to God alone. So I hope that gives you a picture. It might raise more questions than it does give answers, but in personal relationships, no retribution. In our office or role, we seek to uphold justice. Okay, so that's sort of the negative side of it. Don't resist evil people. Jesus says as you seek to live out God's law of love. The second thing is on the positive side, we are to love our enemies. Okay, verses 43 through 47 say this. You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love You, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Okay, so the religious leaders we've already seen are taking the law of God and twisting it, and we see a further twisting of it here. Their teaching was literally... You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. So when Jesus has conversations with religious leaders, lawyers, the smart people of his day, and he asks them to summarize the whole law, the correct answer is love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. So no one was silly enough to deny 
that the teaching of the Old Testament was love your neighbor as yourself. But lots of people tried to get around the implications of that by more narrowly defining their neighbor. And so the religious leaders were experts at this, and they said, your neighbor essentially are only people who are of the same race as you, who are of the same religion as you are, and who literally live in your geographic area. So those are your neighbors. And so what you do with everybody else who's not your neighbor is you hate them. You spit on them. You call them dogs. You refuse to touch them or to be associated with them in any way. And so what Jesus does is he changes his language, not to change the interpretation of what the Old Testament said, but to explain the true interpretation of the Old Testament. Here's what he's saying. This is what God meant when he said, love your neighbor as yourself. What he meant is, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Here's what he's saying. Every person on planet Earth is made in the image of God. And even if they have deeply hurt you and sinned against you, they cannot erase God's image. And he's saying, back out and look at how God treats his image bearers. Even those who are in rebellion against him, even those who hate him, even those who are violently opposed to them, him, what does he do? He makes the sun rise on them and shine on their face. Everyone, whether Christian or non-Christian, enjoys a good day at the beach. And why is that? Because God is smiling down even on his enemies. And so we are called as followers of Jesus to reflect our heavenly father not just by loving those who are like us or who we feel comfortable around or whom we naturally have affinity for, but we are called to love even those who mistreat us. The law of God doesn't let us get away with anything. And we tend to skirt around this law of love with excuses, by saying, but you have no idea what they did to me. We justify our coldness because of what they said to us. We justify our words of anger, and we even let other people justify their words in front of us because of what that person said to us first, or what they wrote about us, or their political views or their views about justice or fill in the blank so we justify ourselves because we don't want to feel the weight of Jesus call but the plain teaching of scripture is there is never an excuse to not love another person And if we step back and we think about it, the most transparently beautiful acts of love 
that are done that really make our hearts sing are acts of love when people step outside of the norm and treat their enemies with dignity and respect. We venerate and honor these people from a distance because it's so hard for us to live into this. I was thinking about my own family heritage this week, and I was thinking about the story of my grandpa. This is kind of a story that's told in my family every once in a while that my grandpa will tell as well. He just turned 91. But when my grandpa was in his mid-30s, he was uh, an elder at his church, but not a Christian. And uh, the, the church didn't teach about salvation through grace. It taught basically salvation by being a good person. And so my grandpa thought of himself as a good person. And uh, he was a farmer, and he had a neighboring farmer who it started off, they kind of did small offenses at each other, and then it basically turned into, over the years, into a feud. And they didn't speak to each other, and when they saw each other, they had choice words for each other, and just, there was tons of animosity. And so my grandpa would have considered this neighboring farmer an enemy. And so, at one time, my grandpa was in a church service, and they had like an evangelistic group come into their church. So again, my grandpa's one of the leaders of the church. The evangelist gets up and shares the gospel, and my grandpa says, I've never heard that before, and says, I think I'm going to put my faith in Jesus. And so he puts his faith in Jesus. And my dad was a really little kid at this point, and he, he remembers that the first foundational and fundamental change that he saw in visible form in his dad is that he, after coming to know Christ, walked over to that neighbor's house, knocked on the door, and said, the feud's over. I'm sorry. I have been wrong. I have not loved you the way that my God calls me to love you. Will you forgive me? And I'm extending forgiveness to you. It's such an elementary principle of Christianity, but I want you to really think about this. Examine yourself right now. Do you have enemies? Is there those people in your life who you don't associate with, who you feel superior to, who you're smug around? Are there people in this room who you can't stand to be around because you're running this narrative through your head, but you don't know what they said to me. You don't know what they've done to me. Is it your parents? Is it someone in your family? Is it a, is it a high school classmate? Maybe an elementary school classmate. There's something you're just holding on to and you can't let go. And it's become like this cancer inside of you. In fact, that bitterness is bigger inside of you than the Spirit of God because you've left it unchecked for so long. And I want you to hear Jesus' call to you right now as a call to walk in freedom. You can unburden yourself from hatred and be filled with love. But here's what it's going to feel like. This is what it always feels like. Let me warn you about this. You are going to walk into the conversation dragging your feet. 
do this. Like the hatred is probably going to get worse before it gets better if you actually decide to do something about this. You're going to walk into the conversation dragging your feet because the part of the reason that you hate them is you feel that they're like 99% wrong and maybe you're 1% wrong. And so to go and humble yourself and to apologize for your hatred is going to feel like death. So you're going to walk into this conversation dragging your feet, but here's what's going to happen. You're going to walk out singing for joy. The freedom and the release will come on the other side of your obedience. And Jesus is asking you to jump off this cliff And what he's saying is, I'll catch you. But you have to trust me because it's going to feel like the most unnatural thing in the world to begin to walk in this way. But his commandment of love stands even for your enemies. Okay, we're convicted already. We're about to get punched. (laughs) This is about to get crazy. All right, here... Here's, here's the last thing that Jesus calls, calls us to do, is to be perfect. To be perfect. Here's how he summarizes what he says. You, therefore, so on the basis of everything that I've said, I want you to understand what I'm saying. He says, you, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Okay, now here's... One way that we begin to feel this. God is calling me to be something that I could never be. Because when we hear perfect, we hear rightly that God's standard for us is moral perfection. We are to be flawless, blameless, and innocent. God does not lower his standard. He is perfect, and he calls us as his image bearers to be perfect. But there's something else embedded in this statement that furthers our understanding and both humbles us, makes us lick the dust of the ground because immediately we feel I'm not perfect, but it also lifts us up to the stars. And here's what I mean by that. He says, be perfect as your father in heaven is perfect. Here's the thing. In that day and age, no one called God their father. In fact, you weren't even allowed to say the name of God. His his name was so sacred. He's in a category by himself. He's holy. He's other. He's different than all of us. And we wouldn't even dare approach God because he is so morally perfect. He is so different. He is so other. And Jesus, counter to that, says, yes, God is perfect. Yes, God is morally flawless. But God is fundamentally your father. He's your dad. Saying you've got this relationship with God like a dad. And the most natural thing in the world is for a child to reflect their dad. And here's what he's saying is true about your dad. 
he loves you even though you have made yourself his enemy. See, when God calls us to love our enemies, and when he calls us to not resist those who treat us unjustly, he is calling us to reflect the attitude that he has toward us. So here's the foundational reality that undergirds this call for us, is that God lives this out perfectly. You have rebelled against him. You have sinned against him more than you ever know. And the law of God will expose that and bring it to the surface. But when we recognize that the law of God is a reflection of the character of God, what we realize is that God is not fundamentally mad at us. He loves us. And he sent the one who spoke these words not to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through So God's perfection, when you think of God's perfection, here's what I want you to think. Not just morally flawless, but the one who perfectly overlooks our offenses. The ultimate gentle father. The one who you can scream at and yell at, and say hateful things to, and neglect, and not pray to, and run away from, and who will keep pursuing you with his love. So here's the decision point for all of us. Will we accept God as our father? Will we stop believing that he is against us, that he's out to get us, and believe that his law is love because his character is love, that he wants what's best for us, that he's not a killjoy, that he's not trying to ruin our life, but he is actually trying to beautify and change our lives, that he's trying to free us from bitterness and unforgiveness. Guys, you know what the most amazing thing about final judgment will be? It's that all of us, when we think final judgment, we immediately think gloom and doom. And, And we start to get afraid because... We know that we can trick the people around us, but we can't trick God. But here's going to be the biggest surprise about heaven for us as believers is we're going to come up expecting a throne of judgment and God's going to be like, hey, welcome home. I've really missed you. I love you. Come here. Let me give you a hug. I'm like, what? Kidding me? It's a trick. And God is going to just invite us up. He's like, hey, you want to sit on my lap? Let me give you a hug. Man, life was rough, wasn't it? Golly, you made it. 
Isn't that fantastic? And he's going to be like, you know, you get a B. I mean, it, your performance wasn't great, but it was pretty good. I mean, you, you were trying to follow me. And, and here's the thing. We are way more condemning of ourselves and exacting of ourselves than God is. Why? Within the context of the gospel, the reason why is because Jesus came to take the punishment. It's not that God is not a God of justice. It's that his wrath has been diverted on to Jesus. Jesus took all of the punishment for your law breaking. So all God has left for you, if you will trust in Jesus and believe that that's the punishment that your law breaking deserves, if you will trust in Jesus, all God has left for you is gentle and fatherly love. Yes, it involves discipline sometimes, but he is more gentle than we could possibly ever imagine. So would you stop hiding? Stop pretending. You know, we're often, we're praying stuff like this, like, God, we're so glad to be in church this morning. We just love you and we want to follow you. Why don't you be honest? I'm not glad to be in church this morning. Sometimes I don't love you. My heart's really cold and I'm questioning the way that you're ruling the universe. I'm frustrated. I'm mad. I'm angry. And let God be God to you. Let him be your dad who can handle your emotions. Let him be your savior. Stop performing and come to him. Let's pray. God, it's amazing that even your law leads us to your grace. That even this call to be perfect as you are perfect leads us back to your heart. And God, it's amazing to see your heart. We have lied about you. We've misconstrued you in our own minds. We've thought that you are trying to uh, destroy us and that you don't have what's good for us. And, and we've been mad at you and we don't understand why you're leading our world and our country the way that you are. But God, we can see in, the, in these moments of clarity that you are gentle and kind. Would you just draw us back, God? Help us to stop believing the lie and to believe the truth that you love us. In Jesus' name, amen.